Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Daniel Berger. We are doing Life Over Coffee, and we are on location. We're in Sarasota, Florida. We're at the Hope Conference. We just wrapped up the conference, and at the end, well, they have been giving us questions over the past couple of days. We do have the folks here out here. Have y'all enjoyed the conference? We'll pay you later. All right. It's amazing how much noise three people can make. <laughs> Y'all did good. All righty. And so uh, what they've been doing, they've been dropping these questions into the box. We're not going to get through all of these questions because there are a lot of them. Uh, there's some here for me. There's some here for Daniel. So we're going to go back and forth. We'll get through as many as we can. And then we'll take the rest of these questions and we'll go through them at home. And what we'll do is work through them and maybe do a couple other video uh, productions uh, taking care of the other questions. So thank you for joining us for this Life Over Coffee episode. Daniel. Are you tired? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I've had my Christian stimulants, and uh, I'm on a <laughs> speaking high right now. Life I'm, over coffee. That's right. That's right. All righty, so, so you, you, got, you got a question. I'll get us started here. And by the way, great questions. Uh, a lot of them overlap, so we'll try to kind of combine some of them. Some of them may be, um, if God allows uh, future conferences, we can tackle maybe in, in a whole session or two sessions type questions. So... Uh, we'll do our best here. Uh, this one, uh, while we are all called to counsel or disciple one another, how do we discern when we need to involve a certified or trained uh, biblical counselor when trying to help a brother or sister? Obviously, uh, you know, big things like abuse, suicidal ideation, criminal acts, and things like that, uh, he's included. Run with it. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, what you're looking for, certified biblical counselor does connote that an individual has received training, uh, but certified biblical counselor doesn't mean that that person is necessarily competent to do whatever, it, whatever the request is. And so you want to guard against that. Uh, all certified biblical counselors are not created equally. Uh, and so you want to be able to vet the person. You do want an individual who has the competence to be able to walk the individual through that. Now, quite honestly, uh, it doesn't have to be a certified biblical counselor. In fact, from my view, the person needs to be competent whether they've gone through a certain training organization or not. And so there are some highly skilled people that know how to help people with specific issues. And that's what you're looking for. And so I am more comfortable with word of mouth, uh, people that you trust who uh, have gone to a particular biblical counselor and, and they have helped them in practical ways uh, and they, they have the gifting to do it. And so certification, again, means training. And so you do want to make sure that the person has enough of academic training, but they also have to have the practice as well. Uh, so we can be educated and we can have the information, but there's also another element of just being quite good, uh, quite good at what you do. And that can come through years of actual practice. And so certification doesn't connote all of those things. Certification connotes just one thing, that they have been through a specified curriculum with an organization. And so you want to make sure that you don't put all of your hope in the fact that this person has a piece of paper on his wall. And doctors, doctors are the same way. But quite honest with you, I can't tell you where my, I think my doctor went to Houston. I, th I think his, his original studies was in Houston, and then he went somewhere else, and I'm not sure 
uh, where he went. But what I do know is he is good, and, and that's the thing that you're really looking for, and you want to add to that. Yeah, I'll just quickly add to what he said. Is, is a Certification is, just, like we talked about, for those of you who are here in the bonus session, it's a pathway. It's, it's saying, uh, I know I'm called to disciple. I want to be better equipped. And so it's a, it's a system that creates a like-minded approach to discipleship, essentially. Um, and, and a good certification program, and I know this church endorses a couple. Rick has, has a certification program. Uh, a good certification program is going to be biblically based but provide very practical answers. And both are, are, are they're not uh, exclusive things. They work together. So... Uh, I encourage certification, but not that you will be the expert coming out of it. We right. all know some really bad biblical counselors, just like um, anyone who's trained within a non-biblical manner. But as a whole, uh, sufficiency counseling is incredible. It's a, it's a great pathway to, right. to go down, if you would. Very good. All right, so Daniel, you, you want to... Um you can Go take, ahead. You, t- you, uh, you can take one of yours first. Okay. And then we'll... well, all right. So I wanted you to pitch, pinch hit okay. on this one. And so, um, uh, so the question is: Other than praying, what is the best way to deal with an adult child who has restored uh, their faith but insists on getting psychiatric help, not willing to discuss? So uh, one thing I know for a fact, and I don't think any of you would disagree, is that you cannot help someone who doesn't want help. Can't do it. So a doctor who just absolutely loves people uh, who are diagnosed with cancer cannot help someone who has cancer unless they say, I want to put myself under your care. That's true with with what we're calling discipleship or counseling. This is one of the reasons pastors go through so much sorrow and disappointment because they have a heart to help people and many times the, the people don't want help. And it's a very discouraging ministry to be in. Um, I was talking to, to Mark uh, Kirby this morning uh, about when Jesus wept in the Gospels when his friend Lazarus was dead. And many commentators note that, that the lack of faith of those observing <clears throat> caused Christ to, to weep. But I, I believe what Scripture says that, that God was fully God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And I believe Jesus did weep because of the lack of faith, but he also wept because death had just occurred in one of his best friends. And so you, you, you need to understand that this, these are real things that uh, people go through, but you can't help someone that doesn't want help. And Jesus saw that. He, he saw Jerusalem that they were not going to receive him, that they had hardened their heart, and he wept. And so it is, it is very grievous. And so as much as you want to help someone, if they don't want help, don't force it on them. That's the worst thing you could do. So what I've seen happen, uh, I'll give you an illustration. This a couple years ago uh, now. I had a, a man that we were going to church with and uh, called me in a, in a, in a crisis, and, and I would say a psychiatric crisis, just to give you a perspective. Uh, their daughter was about to be taken away from them by the psych ward because they were saying, no, we don't want to do this, this, and this. And they, you talk about a panic attack, that was a panic attack. And so they decided that they wanted to uh, go with uh, another advisor that was telling them what to do. And he came back to me and, and several years later and said, you know, I need to ask for forgiveness and just started 
bawling and said, I, I read your Rethinking Depression, and it has helped me, not just my daughter, but I just want to thank you for that. Thank you for being gracious and patient. And God is my witness. I wanted to help these people. And it was hurtful, honestly, that they just basically, he basically said, I don't, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And I just wanted to help. So what I've learned is that when people are ready to receive help, and, and again, I'm not trying to be mean to the secular system. It will fail. It, it can't restore the soul. It, it can't deal with psych issues. It just can't. It can, it can pervertibly try to do that, but it's always taking biblical principles. Rick and I like to say that there's only one perfect psychology, and that's scripture. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is true because God says if you change the way you think, then your behavior will change. But they're taking Jesus out of that and saying that you're that central figure in the change, in the behavior, in the, uh, the whole thing. Um, so don't try to force help on someone that doesn't want it. Present it to them and say, I'm here, you know, I, I'm here if you want an alternative and you find that that's not working. And there's a good possibility that people, uh, many people that uh, are coming for counseling here, that's exactly what has happened. Years they've spent in the psychiatric system and they've come to the conclusion it's not only not working, it's making things worse. <laughs> I'll just say two things to that. Uh, well, three things. Ditto, everything he said. And then I would say uh, one thing for the loving relative, parent, whoever, uh, who asked the question, and then one thing for the individual who doesn't want help. Uh, for the loving parent, what I would uh, encourage you to do is don't oversteer the car. We can, we can overlove. Uh, we, we, can, we can push too far. And, and so you want to learn how to love under the conditions that are presented to you. Uh, we can take on the burden. We can overworry uh, about the situation. And, and, and so you want to just relax and recognize that there are imposed limitations here that aren't on you. Uh, they, they are making the limitations, as Daniel just said. Uh, you can only love people and care for people that want your love and want your care. And so make sure you're not oversteering the car and just trying too hard. Just relax, 2 and 10, drive down the road, just look over the hood, you'll be fine. And then the second thing is that think about it like a person that you were evangelizing. Let's say that you met someone on the street. How would you... Uh, how would you go about introducing the gospel to this person? And so you're playing a long game, and you want to keep the long game in mind, and that will help you not to, to, to over or overcare or press the issue. And so where you want to go, rather than talking about getting psychiatric help, for example, just build a relationship with them. Use the avenues and the context in which you have that could be non-counseling. Like, so if every time that they saw you, it's like, well, you know, here comes so-and-so. I know what this is going to be about. Just talk about other things and build that relational bridge because there will be moments in that individual's life. If you have the relationship established, there will be some point in that person's life where they will come to you and ask you questions. The template for that is uh, Luke, Luke 15, verses 12 through 17, or after verse 17, where the prodigal, when he finally came to the hog lot, he came back to the person who actually loved him, to his father. And so just maintain that relationship, build in other areas as you can with them, and then when that time comes, they know you're there, uh, they have confidence in you, and they may come back, and then you will have that opportunity. All right, so you're... Am I doing it's your that? question now. Oh, okay. All right, so would you talk more about the specifics of transactional forgiveness? As I talked in the uh, 
meeting last night, I think. I'm not sure even what day this is, but in one of the past lectures, uh, I talked about attitudinal and transactional forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness is when you actually go to the person and you ask them to forgive you for a specific thing. And so some of the particularities about transactional forgiveness uh, is, is one, uh, the first part of that is, is confession. And so you're confessing something. And so you want to confess with specificity. And so if I uh, sinned against Daniel and I went and asked Daniel to forgive me for something, I need to be specific uh, with what I did, because what you want to do is you want I want to release Daniel. I want to give him the freedom to forgive me, and I don't want him to wonder like I don't even think Rick knows what he did. And so, when a husband and wife uh, a husband sins against his wife, hey, would you forgive me? And she's thinking, wow, I mean that hurts. I mean, do you realize how much that hurt? And so, in your confession, you want to be really specific, Daniel. I got very angry at you, and I was just truly upset. And to be honest with you, James calls this murder, and I mean, it's not hyperbole. I mean, I I murdered you, and I said this, and I really need for you to to forgive me. I mean, I, I, I need your forgiveness, and I know I hurt you. And so you want your confession to be like that. You actually want to be the prosecuting attorney. You want to prosecute yourself in such a way that he's like, whoa, like he gets it, he understands, he knows exactly what he did. And so that allows him to like, well, he has to decide. And so now that's the other side of forgiveness. Uh, Forgiveness is not a one-way street. Forgiveness is a two-way street. It's transactional. And so it's the offender and the offended. So he has a responsibility to forgive me, to release me from it. But I don't want to complicate it by being murky or being gray about what I, what I did. Now, within transactional forgiveness, sometimes the hurt can be so deep that the offended, like I've sinned against, my, I sinned against Lucia many times, and, and there have been a few occasions where I asked her to forgive me, and she forgave me, but she was still struggling with what I did because what I did was very hurtful. My anger was very hurtful toward her. And so one of the ways that you can tell if the forgiveness is authentic is if it it has truly been neutralized by the power of the gospel. And if that forgiveness has been authentic, it it was authentic, then the sin is neutralized. It's roadkill. It's there. It's not going to come alive again. And so she's still hurting. She's forgiven me, but she's still hurting. Well, we can walk around it. We can talk about it. We can look at it. And now I can actually try to help her to work through her struggle because of the lingering effects of what I did. And so transactional forgiveness is just not a momentary exchange. Will you forgive me? I forgive you. It is truly an interactive relationship that takes work on both parties, not just to ask, Not just to convince them that I sinned in the clearest ways, but he has to forgive. And then, if the forgiveness is real, we should be able to reconcile. (laughs) And there's no... So, if this is is sin right here, here's sin. And if he's forgiven me... So, if you reconcile like this, it's still here. But if it's truly roadkill... Are you tired of me hugging you? (laughs) 
say you're tired of it. Do not say you like it. Start calling me Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Phil. Did you say Phil? That's going to be the joke that never dies. (laughs) I feel you. All right, now it's getting awkward. (laughs) I mean, it was awkward, but can you just go sit down over here? (laughs) Do you see how reconciled we are? The sin is here. And so now we can laugh and enjoy each other. And that's when you know, and y'all can too, that's when you know it's been neutralized by the power of the gospel. I forgive you. (laughs) How many times? 70 times? But I want you to name that sin specifically. (laughs) Oh, Phil. All right. All right. That was good. That was good. All right. I guess I'm up here. Could you... Uh, please explain how pharmacy or pharmacia uh, from the Bible is related to pharmacia, witchcraft, etc., or sorcery. This is a whole session. I'll just try to give a very quick illustration. So pharmacia is a very large umbrella term that uh, has the idea of deceiving through sorcery. It does include, if I can use this phrase, magic potions, Okay. Sorcerers back in biblical times as well as throughout history have essentially been the go-to people. We also call it witch doctors, uh, shamans, etc. Um, it's interesting. There's, there's a documentary on Netflix called The Last Shaman. Uh, one of the leading neuroscientists, his son was diagnosed with schizophrenia, takes him to one of the leading psychiatrists in his hospital. The psychiatrist basically confesses to him that they don't know what they're doing and they have no solution for his son. The son's like, okay, I'm out of here. He goes to South America and finds a shaman and enters this whole shamanic uh, trance trying to figure out what this is, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously I don't endorse what's going on, but it's pretty eye-opening. Dr. Alan Francis, who chaired the DSM-4 in his book, uh, it's, my book's called Saving Abnormal. His is called Saving Normal. And in his book, Saving Normal, he actually says that psychiatrists are actually shamans. They're actually witch doctors. Now, that's not me saying that. That's one of the most powerful psychiatrists in the world still today, was head over psychiatry at Duke University, chaired the DSM-4, very, very powerful man, invented what we call bipolar II, and he, he, he regrets doing that, he says in the book as well. All of this goes back to, he says, you don't actually see us as shamans because we're not making the magic potion. We've actually organized, and it's not one one shaman per per pueblo or per city now. Uh, We're we're a big group of people. We're very strong, and we're telling everybody we're scientific, and we don't make our magic potions. Big Pharma does. Now, uh, just quickly, Revelation 21, where it says that that the deceivers, talking about the beast there in, in Revelation, will, through, through its merchants, globally deceive the whole world using pharmacaea. And there's a lot of people that say, oh, drugs. You see, drugs are going to be used to, to deceive. You have to remember that's, first of all, a metaphor in that whole entire context, okay? So I personally don't believe he's saying whoever the, the beast and the Antichrist are are going to use drugs to deceive everyone. It's certainly possible. But I do want you to understand metaphors don't work in our time, but also biblically, unless there's a reality to grasp onto. It'd be like me giving you an illustration to parenting using a car. If you don't know what a car is, it's pointless to use that metaphor, that illustration, right? So there's, there's clearly a link here. And if you study biblically, if you've ever gone to Israel, you'll quickly find that out. And hopefully uh, 
Rick and I will be able to do that here uh, with Mark and, and others. Uh, some of you are going to join us, and we're, we're still going to do that. So hold on to that thought, too. We haven't even talked about that. But if you ever get to go to, to Caesarea, not by the sea, but up, up the mount near Mount Hermon there, you'll quickly find out that that, that is where uh, Christ said to Peter, on you, I will build my rock. And, and it was a place of pharmakeia. They had a drug for every single thing that the Holy Spirit said that he facilitated they had a drug for, and, and physical things as well. Well, that's happening now, isn't it? And so biblically, how it relates to drugs, if you replace the Holy Spirit, whether it's trying to tell the future or talk to the dead or any ministry of God that you try to replace with anything, that's actually sorcery. When you're, when you're telling people that hope comes from a pill versus the Holy Spirit, like Revelation uh, I'm sorry, like Romans 15, 13 says, or you're saying that self-control isn't a gift to the spirits found in a bottle and kids without self-control need that, you're now beginning to replace the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we can see there a difference. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Not everyone who, who takes a psychotropic drug is actually entering into pharmacia. Okay, so that, that's where I want to be clear here. When you replace God, there's an incredible danger immediately. Uh, a lot of people will take a psychotropic drug for a biblical reason. So, for example, in, in Proverbs chapter 31, it talks about people who are dying or who are in deep misery. You're to be given strong drink or alcohol. So we do morphine now. That's, that's a psychotropic drug. That is a biblical ethical reason. So medicine has its place, but never to treat soul issues that the Holy Spirit is to treat. I hope that makes sense in a very quick answer um, but the reason that metaphor works is because Satan uses the deceitfulness, the chemical, if I can say, of lust to drive us away from Jesus, and that's his pharmacia. That's his witchcraft, if you would. He's incredibly good about that. All right, we're going to do two more questions. I'll do this one. Daniel will do that, and we'll wrap up, and then we'll take uh, all these other questions, and we'll take them home with us, and then we'll work through these in these video. Uh, video sessions. All right, so my question is, how do you help a friend who just lost their son to a murder? Uh, what do you say? Uh, I avoid them and say things like, I'm praying, which I am doing. It's one of the most painful situations that you can go through, and so I'll, I'll give two, uh, two thoughts, one on each side of that, one for you, one for them. You, you just need to go in. You, you need to go in there, and uh, you need to talk to the person. And And what I would say this is, I love you, I don't know what to say. Sometimes if you don't know what to say, say, I don't know what to say. And just be honest and, and let, it, let it go from there. There's a pneumatic element here of walking in the Spirit. And, and I, I absolutely promise you that if you step into that moment, God will meet you there. And uh, He will give you words to say. I remember my friend Randy Smith, uh, he and his wife, they had a stillborn this was 30-something years ago, and we were going over to his house, and me and a friend, and my friend asked me, he said, what are you going to say? I said, I have no clue. I have no clue. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to knock on the door. Randy's going to answer the door. And uh, I'm just going to hug him, and I'm going to cry. And I, I, knowing Randy, he's going to hug me, and he's going to cry. And that's exactly what happened. And then we took it from there. We took it from there. So I talked the other night about faith 
Sometimes in our faith, we want to know the now known outcome before we step into it. And so, you know, I don't want to talk to this person because I don't know how it's going to go. And so this is a challenge for you to have your faith situated in God. Now, you know God is compelling you. This is my friend. I love my friend. My friend has gone through a great loss. And so I'm going to obey God, and I'm going to love my friend. And that's all the data that I have. But I'm going to step into it because I know God's going to meet us there, and then we're going to go. Now, you know, tied to that, uh, you're going to love imperfectly. And so you may say the imperfect thing, we do that. Uh, we're, we're imperfect people living with imperfect people in an imperfect world. Well, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be elements of imperfection there. But that's okay. Those moments are wonderful opportunities to, hey, you know what? That was a dumb statement. I'm sorry. And you'll see that sometimes uh, we have a, a lady in our church who's been in a wheelchair all of her adult life. And I talked to her about this. And I told her as we were talking, I said, we know when I first saw you, I didn't know how to talk to you. You're in a wheelchair. It's like, what do I do? Do I say, you know, how did this happen? What's going on? And some people tend to avoid her. And that's exactly what she said. She said, people just look at me and avoid me. And she said, I just want you to, like, just, hey, just talk to me like a normal person. And there's an element that you understand about what the person who has the murdered uh, son uh, is going through. Uh, you've gone through grief. You've gone through fear. You've gone through hurt. You've gone through anger. You've gone through revenge, bitterness, unforgiveness. There's elements, there's traces there that we all have as a common human experience. So, so it's not like you are totally unrelated to this person as far as what they're going through, even though what they're going through is more on a hyperbolic level. And so step in the moment, trust God, be pneumatic. He will meet you there. Uh, and then the second, on the other side, for those of you who are suffering, which is all of us to varying degrees, and I understand that, but for the person who has a, the, the murdered uh, child, there's an element of leadership with suffering. And so if you're suffering, if you're going through COVID, if you're going through something, uh, it's important for all of us to know that we not just suffer, but we have to lead through our suffering. An illustration of that would be Luke 22, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was the one that was suffering, but when he came back to his friends, they were sleeping, and he had to lead them in the moment. And so if you're on the other end where you are the sufferer, be aware of that. Like, understand that that person who's coming to you is probably timid anxious, maybe scared and fearful. And so make it easy for them. Show a leadership quality. And so leadership and suffering go hand in hand. If you just suffer without leading yourself through it, you're going to suffer poorly. But if you suffer and exercise a leadership gift, you will not only lead yourself through it, but you will lead others. And I think sometimes we have the expectation, I am suffering they should do something, and, it, and you need to guard against that attitude because you'll begin to like be critical of the church, you know, or critical of somebody. They didn't shake my hand. They didn't give me uh, flowers or, or whatever, and so you want to guard. You have to lead yourself through that, and if they do fail in 
serving you the way that they should, that's where your leadership through suffering has to kick in. And so it's a dichotomy, and both of those are essential. We suffer and we lead at the same time. And again, Christ is our great example of that. And so number one, step into the pneumatic moment and just, just be there. God will meet you. If you're on the other end of it, don't forget, uh, you don't set your leadership aside. You, may have to, you will have to lead yourself. You may have to lead them also. One more question, and then we will wrap up. All right. I'm going to combine two of the questions here. There was multiple of these as well, and the the first part of it is very quick. Is suicide the unpardonable sin? That is a a Roman Catholic teaching. In my opinion, it's a manipulative thing. It's not a biblical thing. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. Now, I do do think if you're in fellowship with God, suicide is not going to happen. And, and as we talked about just briefly last night, and it's not that you're not going to consider it because you're, you're uh, a fallen human, but as we talked about last night, uh, one of the examples that I counter that we've, uh, Rick and I both have touched on is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul said, the comfort I'm comforting you with, I, I myself have received. And he goes and he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this. You need to get this. He says, I, we were in such distress that we faced death, that we, were, we thought we were going to die. Okay, so he's thinking about death. He's not thinking about taking his life, but he's thinking about death. And for some reason in our culture, it's, it's, we've almost equated if I'm thinking about death, then that's a bad thing. Actually, it's a good thing, right? We've talked about this, I think, two years ago. We talked about depression a little bit. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon says the wise actually will go to funerals rather than to a party, and they take that to heart that we're all facing the grave. And so Paul says a very important statement there. He says, we face death, but that was to make us depend on Christ. So we really only have two ways about this. We're going to depend on ourselves, or we're going to depend on Christ. So depending on self looks like making ourselves the hope, and when we have no other hope, we still have to figure it out because we're depending on self that's what suicide is. It's a false hope. It's, it's a, often the, the last entry in a long list of self-help uh, hope uh, attempts, if you would. So uh, that's number one. And, and then a really good question, where do we go from here? Help. And there's a twofold uh, question in one of, one of the entries. I want to focus on the spiritual first. Last night, I, I mentioned Acts chapter 14 and the Philippian jailer with Paul, uh, Paul and Silas there. And just to give you a quick preference here, you know, obviously these men were facing death. They were going to be killed. And that's what the jailer knew. And all of a sudden this earthquake, earthquake happens because the church is praying for, for them. The gates fly open. The jailer wakes up and he's like, I'm going to die. I, I, I had one job to do and I didn't do it. So he grabs his sword and the Bible says he starts to fall on his sword. So this isn't like he's thinking about it. This is an actual suicide attempt that Paul and Silas are seeing. Now, I don't know about you, but my flesh says if I saw that happening and I'm in prison and I've been beaten and, and I'm about to, to die and I see the guard that's keeping me in the prison about to kill himself, I'm like, hey, Silas, shh, You're right? I mean, honestly, I'm like, what did Paul and Silas do? They went, no, 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 don't do that. They immediately discerned the deceit. The deceit was that Paul and Silas had left so that the fear uh, was guiding it. So there's the motive. The relationship was with his, his authority. He, feel, he felt like he was going to face death. So they immediately went to him and comforted him and said, we're still here. 
which also corrected the deceit. You know what, uh, in, in all the secular science, they found that people who call into a helpline and the person says, you know, there is hope for you. I care about you. Let's talk again. That actually is not helpful unless they call back a second time. If they call back a second time, the person goes, wow, this person does care. So if you're struggling with suicidal ideation, you need, first of all, you need to seek help with someone who can discern the motive of your heart. But you, you probably already know the things that have led. It may be anxiety like Saul faced. It may be like Judas, the guilt of sins that you've done. It may be uh, vengeance like Samson went through. Those motives have to be resolved. And until you resolve those, those motives of the heart, that's going to continue to be an option. And the second thing is, like, like Paul said, depend on Christ. If, if you're thinking you have to work all this out, suicide becomes an option. It doesn't work. All you do is take your sorrow and despair and give it to the people who are left behind. Um, as far as the drugs go, and I'll just quickly touch on this, you have to go to a licensed medical professional uh, to be what's called de-prescribed. These are incredibly dangerous drugs, even going to a physician. Sadly, uh, what the suicidal effects often come in the withdrawal stage. So many people get deceived into thinking that they have some mental illness that's causing suicidal ideation. It's actually the withdrawal. So then they're like, well, I got to get back on these drugs. And the drug, in fact, is what's, what's causing it. There was a related question I don't have time to go into about uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors as well as dopamine reuptake inhibitors. And the, that whole chemical imbalance idea actually has been discredited. And that, that's one of the reasons I wrote The Chemical Imbalance Delusion. And, and so I don't want to take too much time on that. But what I do want to say is if, if you're struggling with akathasia, you need to go tell your doctor. You need to be knowledgeable about what you're going through and be able to relate that to your doctor. I, I speak a lot in Brazil. Uh, I run a, actually a psychology program that's, that's recognized by the government in, in uh in Brazil, we, we, we focus out of Brasilia, Brazil, and we have uh, the vast majority of our, our students are actually MDs. And one of the students that came to uh, the conference, uh, when he came to shake my hand, he was shaking so violently, and I found out from the translator he'd been on, on psychotropic drugs for 20 years. Well, he actually has a condition. It wasn't akathasia in his case. It was actually a condition called tardive dyskinesia. And sometimes it's seen like people uh, going, you know, just violently. They can't control their nervous system because these drugs attack it. And he had never heard of this. And uh, the other physician that was with him said, you know, I've actually read about this. I never thought that's what it is. And sure enough, that's what it was. He had been on it so long. This is a natural consequence. You have to seek professional help. If you know you're going through akathasia or, or tardive dyskinesia, or there's another one, tardive dysphoria, where you, you start getting blunted to life where you don't care about life anymore, which is part of the suicidal ideation, you need to go to your physician and tell them, look, I'm, I know this is happening because of these drugs. I need help. So I've, I've said a lot there, but please pursue help. If you're, if you're having thoughts of suicide, it is not an escape. It's not, and that's, that's the real deceit of Satan is everything will be better if you take your life. It, it not only is not better for you, it, it's not, of course, if, if you're a believer, you'll go to heaven. Yes, that is better, but you're, the damage you're doing to people that are left behind, you may in fact be causing your children, your friends to consider taking their life as well, and I know that no one in here would want to do that. Um, we don't want to gift deep despair or even suicidal thinking to those 
that we leave behind. It's just not, uh, it's, it's a deceitful way of thinking. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Daniel Berger and Rick Thomas. As they did here at Calvary Chapel in Sarasota, if you have any questions that you would like for us to cover in this series, all you have to do is hit the contact button in the bottom of our website and just say, hey, would you guys consider taking on this question? And we would love to consider it. Maybe we can make a, do a video out of it. Sarasota, uh, Calvary Chapel, take us home.